This is Big O, Mr. In The Black himself from the In The Black podcast, and I'm kicking it with Big Mike, my homie from the UK. Yeah, Genuine Chit Chat podcast, one of the best podcasts I've listened to in a long time. Make sure you stick around and check it out. Thank you to Big O for that fantastic intro. He's from In The Black podcast, and his promo will be playing later. Anyway, guys, welcome to yet another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, I am joined by Christopher Gerg. Now, Chris is the Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of Cyber Risk Management for Tetrad Events. So this chat is all about cybersecurity, ransomware, data privacy, and that sort of thing. I won't go into too many details here, but a quick overview. Essentially, this chat, as I say, is all about cyber risk and security and that sort of thing. So it's when hackers are trying to attack your system, take personal data, all that sort of thing. So in this chat, we talk about what exactly ransomware and malware is, the difference between them, what you can do to try and sort of mitigate the uh, chance of someone being able to attack you or rather reduce the risk, um, what Chris actually does um, and other information based things. It's primarily about cyber risk and security and that sort of thing, which may not sound that exciting from the get-go but it is something incredibly important especially for any business owners so this is just a really great way to sort of brush up on knowledge and have a greater understanding of the threats to security and things that we can potentially face every day because all of us are using computers so much and technology is becoming so much more used and so much more ubiquitous everywhere that it's changing from something we should all know to very quickly something that we all need to know so it's a very important chat Anyway, that's enough from me, guys. I'll let Chris do the majority of the talking in the full chat. Um, Just before the chat gets started, there will be a quick promo for the In The Black podcast. Um, Big O did do an intro of this episode, which is fantastic. Uh, And I did the intro plug for them as well as the promo for them because next week they're the guests on the show. Um, I believe it's going to be a two-parter, so it'll be for the next consecutive weeks. But I will go much more into that at the end of the show. Once I've finished talking with Chris and stuff, I'll be back at the end to give sort of more details of what's to come and that sort of thing. So... That's basically it for me, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in and watching. I really appreciate all you guys checking this out, and I'll talk to you at the end. What's up, family? It's your boy, Big O, Mr. In The Black himself, host of the In The Black podcast. Join me and my co-host, Phil The Orange Crush. Hey. And Rick Hustlehard. Hey. As we discuss the current events, social issues, and hot topics going on in your black world. Everything from love to politics, entertainment, financial empowerment, and much more. And all from the perspective of three black working professionals and family men. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else you can stream your podcast from. So come join in on our conversation. And as always, informed, intelligent, in the black. Welcome to Genuine Chit Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. And I'm your host, Mike Burton. So I am joined today by Christopher Gerg. Um, Chris, it's wonderful to have you on. I've listened to you on another few podcasts and things, and your knowledge about sort of cybersecurity and that realm of things is what's incredible. And I think it's something that a lot more people, both within business and out of business, could it's it'd be really good for a lot more people to be more knowledgeable about these things because it's a lot more forward than people think and it's getting closer and closer and more and more intent and it's becoming less of a oh we should know about it to no you seriously need to know about this stuff so i thought if you just want to introduce yourself and then we can kind of talk about sort of cybersecurity in that sort of realm of things sure um as you said my name is christopher gerg i'm the chief information security officer and vice president of cyber risk management at a company called tetra defense uh in the u.s and I've got a career spanning decades. I, I, you can tell by the gray in my beard. You can't tell on the audio <laughs> podcast, but um, uh, I, I'd like to say I've been around the block. But uh, I have, I have been everything from a pen tester to a security architect to a chief information security officer. I've run IT departments, um, and and security is is something that was kind of always tangential to things and thinking and budgeting, um, but it's it's gotten. It's gotten essential um, to the point that, uh, as we were talking before we started recording, 
um, in, information security or cybersecurity insurance is now becoming, I would say, mandatory um, because of, of what we're seeing. My company does, a, does incident response as well as proactive information security work. And, and from what we're seeing, it's, I've seen many businesses just completely go under um, because of, of the effect of these breaches and these ransomware attacks. And um, I've also seen organizations um, who didn't have cybersecurity insurance pretty much just have to shut their doors. Um, because when you think about it, if, if your computers aren't available, there's not a, an organization that I know of that's still going to be able to function at anywhere near an efficient level, if at all. Mm, I mean, I completely agree with you there. And so, so feeding into cybersecurity and that sort of thing, for people who know nothing about anything to do with cybersecurity, what exactly is it that what is it you're protecting in in layman's terms? Like what is the thing that you're trying to keep secure and what are people trying to attack and get in a sense? Well, there's there's kind of some different angles. There's there's the angle of privacy. People in the EU are going to be familiar or, or former EU are going to be familiar with <laughs> with GDPR. And uh, GDPR is is from the angle of privacy. So the confidentiality of your data and who owns your data and where is information about you stored and how is it used and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of one of the legs of cybersecurity. I would say that there's three in, in, in the industry. We, we call it the CIA triad. It's confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And uh, so, so GDPR focuses primarily on the confidentiality of data. But we're not just talking about data and information. We're talking about services. We're talking about the availability of of computing resources for everything from a bank to a manufacturing company, there's computers that, that run their business and they need to be available and the data needs to have good integrity. And also a lot of that data very often needs to be confidential. And so when we're talking about cybersecurity, we're talking about protecting those three things essentially. And that, and that could be for an organization the size of you know Chase Bank down to Bill and Ted's excellent stereo emporium, you know, on Main Street or something like that. So it affects everybody in some way. And the organizations we work with span every vertical you can imagine and every size organization, even to government level across the board. And so when when you sort of started your journey, as you said uh, earlier, so decades ago, was it Obviously, what a lot of people, especially who are my sort of age and potentially younger, won't understand and realize as much is how the internet went from being not even really few people seemed to predict the internet itself until it was already upon us, essentially. And there was the transition period of the 90s, early 2000s. But it's gone from zero to 100 very, very quickly. And so from your experience, obviously, starting out decades ago, how important was cybersecurity seen in the industry at that point compared to now and what sort of things have actually changed a lot from from your experience of, of the years you've been working in there? Well, I think there wasn't a lot of awareness of trust and and certainly not the the, the sophistication of encryption has increased exponentially to the point now where pretty much every website is encrypted. So it's it's difficult to intercept that traffic. It's still possible. So I I, I think the biggest the biggest change that's happened is there've been these large breaches and we've learned from our mistakes. And, and ultimately um, when I was doing pen testing, like in 1999 in that vicinity, there was not an organization that we were asked to do a pen test for that we didn't completely own and compromise. Um, I was sitting at my home computer and was logged into a casino's server that ran the slot machines on their casino floor. Um, I was just sitting at my home computer and had the control interface for the slot machine. So I like to think that things have gotten better. Um, I think things have gotten better, not necessarily because of a loss of reputation. That's what people used to always say. Look, look, Sears, Roebuck or whoever, if you're going to collect credit card data to make payments um, or you're going to have an e-commerce site like your Land's End or you're one of these big e-commerce sites, people are not going to. If you have a compromise, if, if you get hacked and, and credit card data gets stolen, you're pretty much going to have to shut your doors because no one's ever going to trust you again. That was the big like sales ploy to get information security kind of down the road a bit. And I mean, people still go to Target to shop, you know. Um, so I, I don't think that reputation argument is a strong one. Um, I think that there have 
been compliance obligations that have forced the hand of people uh, to make cybersecurity uh, appropriate cybersecurity decisions. But I also think that actual breaches have, like, like the payment card industry has been, I would say, one of the strongest leaders in this area where where the Visa, MasterCard, JCB, Discover, and American Express got together and before the government stepped in and made a independent third-party organization called the Security Standards Council, the PCISSC, full of acronyms. I'll try not to go into them too much, but <laughs> they made this third-party organization that developed uh, a data security standard that they said, anyone who stores, processes, or transmits credit card data needs to do needs to meet these minimum requirements for, for cybersecurity. And that, and that really kind of got the needle moving uh, when it comes to uh, cybersecurity because the, the payment card industry said, look, the feds are going to step in and mandate something and, and they're going to do a hack need job of it at best. Um, and so let's do it ourselves so we can demonstrate that we're, we're performing, we're, we're taking due care and performing due diligence to make sure that that things are protected and that we're doing what we can to lock things down. Uh, Europe was way ahead of the U.S. Uh, when it came to that because the the chip and pin uh, was rolled out in Europe and Asia before it was rolled out anywhere else in EMEA as well. U.S. now has not necessarily in some cases it's chip and pin. It's usually chip and sign, but at least they've got the chip on the card. So think, things are things have gotten better in that regard. Other other compliance regimes have have pushed things along as well. Um, I'm thinking of HIPAA in the US, uh, GDPR, obviously. Um, there was a patchwork of compliance regimes in the EU um, that people were trying to comply with, but it, it became just onerous if you did did work in more than one country and who, who doesn't do work in more than one country now, thanks to the internet. So it, it, has, it has leveled the playing field a bit and it has forced the hand of people to actually take this seriously. Um, I think privacy is only going to expand. That that confidentiality of personal information is only going to expand and make it make it even more required. But what's interesting, and I'm sorry if I keep talking, can I interrupt at any Please time? Please do. Please um, do. The thing that's been interesting is 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 through my career, I've seen. You know, we always used to say because we got into anything we tried to hack. Why isn't everybody hacked? And and who is actually a target? And, and that's where the PCI DSS came from, that data security standard, the payment card industry came up. They're after money. Um, unless they've got an ax to grind or they hate you politically or something like that, they're after money. They're trying to steal something from you. And so, so they would go after credit cards and they would go after the payment mechanisms to steal credit card information. And, and that was a big deal. Um, there were organizations that would, uh, criminal organizations that would steal 30 million credit card numbers and then do like a five cent charge every month that, that was just called service fee. And people would look at their bills and go, eh. And even if only 80% of those got through, you know, 30 million credit cards every month, every month that, that adds up pretty quickly. And so that, that's what they were going after. Now with ransomware, that is information security tools weaponized and really become a, a very lucrative way for criminals to make business to the point that they've actually become full organizations themselves. There's a, a, an organization in Estonia that's out of the reach of Interpol that they pay taxes on the money they're stealing through ransomware or extorting through ransomware. Um, and, and they've got like a Google style cafeteria. They've got ping pong tables. They, they, it, it's a, it's a company that's above board and everyone knows where they are. I mean, it's insanity. And, so that's forcing the hand of people more and more because ransomware has gotten absolutely rampant. Um, the, we work with a private equity firm that's got about 100 companies in their portfolio, and 10% of them have been hit by ransomware and locked down. So now they've hired us to come in, and they said, okay, look, enough is enough. This is a huge drain on our productivity. This is a huge drain on our profitability. And, and is a real threat to these private equity firms, this, this particular private equity firm, from continuing to make money on this investment. So, so they've had us come in and, and do a risk assessment and put together a roadmap. And we're kind of the CISO as a service, um, helping these companies get their, get their stuff together so that, that they're, they don't suffer from ransomware. And we should go into what, what ransomware is because there's a lot of misconceptions about that. Well, that was going to be the, the next sort of question is when, when people th think about sort of, I know this is a slightly different kettle of fish, but you know, when, 
where people thought of having desktop computers or laptops and then you get a virus and then people think, oh no, you get this thing and then you click it and either it takes you to a place where you put your credit card details in or it slowly just makes your system a brick. And I heard in one of the other chats that you were having with um, another individual is that one of the things that's becoming, um, I can't remember the percent, but uh, I'm sure you'll tell me, is ransomware now is becoming so ubiquitous. It's, it's just so massive now. It's the main way of people sort of hacking and malicious software going in. So if you could sort of define what happens with ransomware and how it's different from say malware and then potentially also go into a little bit of just what having insurance on this would actually assist with sure um so that there's a common misconception that like you said you, you get something in your email and you double click it and wham your entire organization is ransomware um that's not how it works what so so these organizations and and i'm, I'm going to call them organizations they they have different teams inside their organization. And the first one just scans the entire internet for vulnerable hosts. Um, the one that's been hit very much in the last uh, six months or so by an order of magnitude has been RDP, Windows Remote Desktop Protocol. So there's a, this remote terminal or remote desktop service that runs on Windows computers that lets you get a remote desktop. So people would use that, like they're working from home and they want to connect to their computer at work. Um, they would use Windows Remote Desktop Protocol. Well, it's it's a protocol that has some some weaknesses. It has had many vulnerabilities and exploits published on the internet. And so if you have a Windows machine that is exposed to the internet through RDP, remote desktop protocol, and it's not completely up to date with patches, you are probably already compromised. And even if you do have it up to date with patches, I believe that so many people have been attacking that protocol or that mechanism that there are many ways to exploit it that we don't know about. So if, if your listeners take anything away from our conversation, it's if you've got RDP exposed to the public internet, please stop it. <laughs> and also, I wouldn't trust that machine anymore at all. And so what happens is that that first group looks for vulnerable hosts, RDP being one of them. Another one, there are some, uh, really almost any unpatched service is vulnerable to this kind of attack. And they will make scripts that just go address by address by address and try to find vulnerable hosts. So they get in that way. And what do they do once they get in? They install some tools to do some conventional hacking. They might uh, also just send phishing emails, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, phishing emails. And those are targeted emails that contain very often malware or a link to a website that has been previously compromised that serves up malware. So the malware that they install is a very teeny tiny little shim of, of, a, of code that usually runs off um, something locally installed like PowerShell or VBScript or or uh, Python, and will most workstations have that software installed on it? They call it living off the land because it's already there. So they they run this little tiny bit of code that is always changing, so your anti malware doesn't notice it, and it really just gets its foot in the door. And using that tool, they can download other tools. So they'll down they'll they'll get that installed. Um, they will compromise hosts. They'll do this thing. They'll get a, a list of these are the hosts we were able to get compromised, and then they hand it off to their exploitation team. And the exploitation team will then download their Swiss Army knife of hacking tools using that little shim that they installed. And from there, they will see what else they can find. And they will spend, they will take their time mapping out your internal network. They, they do go after individuals, but more often than not, they want to go after corporations because it's the corporations that can pay these ransoms. And so, so they map everything out. They look for the soft, chewy center of your company. That could be intellectual property. It could be a database. It could be the, the mechanisms you use to run your, your slot machines uh, or, or your manufacturing equipment. And they will map everything out. They'll find your backups. That's one of the main things they want to find. Because if they can encrypt your backups and your backups are not available, you're more likely to have to pay the ransom or you're going to be facing months of downtime while you rebuild every computer in your environment. Um, so once they've mapped out your network, they know all your hosts, they know where all the juicy bits are, they hand that off to their ransomware team. Then the ransomware team will install the ransomware, and that's when everything's locked down. The encryption is very fast. These people are very clever. The tools they use uh, have been refined over time. In fact, I can log into some dark web uh, web servers, and for five thousand dollars, I can buy a ransomware kit and and do it myself. There's even services out there that you can pay a monthly fee. And if you want to have a five hundred dollar ransom, you pay fifty dollars a month. If you want to have a fifty thousand dollar ransom, you pay two hundred dollars a month, so that you can license their software to 
uh, do ransomware. So it's all this very organized, very sophisticated nightmare that is almost impossible to track down because they're using tools like VPN, virtual private network. Tor was one of the first ones that was a VPN and it was made to protect privacy or give people access to information from oppressive regimes. Uh, Burma and Burma slash Myanmar is one of the early ones, but Turkey, China, uh, any any government that's trying to squelch information or, or block information, those citizens can use this Tor VPN to tunnel their traffic through to some other country. They don't even know. They, it, it's untrackable by design so that these people don't get in trouble with the secret police or whatever. But the, the ransomware organizations are using those tools to, to make it so that they can't be tracked on the network. Then when they encrypt your machine, so they install the ransomware, all of your machines are encrypted, and all the only thing that pops up on the screen is a is a little note that says, "Send five Bitcoin, ten Bitcoin, twenty Bitcoin, cryptocurrency to this wallet." Again, by design, untraceable. Cryptocurrency is by design very difficult, if not impossible, to trace payments. It's decentralized. The only people who know what transactions happened are you, the person who has your wallet, and the person who you sold stuff to will have some record that a transaction occurred. But otherwise, it's, it's, it's virtually untraceable. I've talked with folks at some of the three-letter three letter acronym uh, organizations in the U.S. that say, you know, never, don't, never pay the ransom. We're, we're tracking down these criminals. They, they can't. Uh, they just can't, you know, be, be with behind their hand and away from a microphone. They'll, they'll, they'll say it's, it's difficult, if not impossible. Um, where they do find people tripping up is when they make mistakes. These are humans. And sometimes they post things with their real name. Sometimes they accidentally use their real email address. I mean, those kinds of mistakes happen. Um, but otherwise, if, if they've got their stuff together, it's, they're very difficult to track down. So what happens now? I've got ransomware. My organization has ransomware. Well, if they've done their quote unquote job, all of your computers are locked down with ransomware, or at the very least, your most important computers, along with your backups. So you've got cybersecurity insurance. If you don't, you're, you're kind of hosed, um, to point <laughs> a phrase. Um, and you're going to have to pay that ransom or rebuild all your, all your machines. If you've got cybersecurity insurance, you'll, we'll get a, my company, a company like mine, will get a call from the insurance company, privacy council, and a customer. Um, privacy Council works for the customer, not the insurance company. And they will say, okay, we'd like to contract with you to do this work. We are not the most expensive firm that does this work, but the people who do this work are, have a very specialized skill set, a little like Liam Neeson. I have a very specific skill set. Um, they're themselves expensive to hire, right? But we have been expanding like crazy. Um, we've hired another, I think, 12 in just the last couple months um, because we were getting calls from insurance companies saying, we've called 10 other incident response firms and none of them are taking cases because they're at capacity. Um, so that gives you an idea of the magnitude of this issue. And I'm telling you, because Privacy Council is on the phone, all of that is privileged information. Um, if they find that there was a breach where data was exfiltrated from your organization or stolen from your organization, then then there are requirements that they have to let people know that there is a breach and that they, they have to let them know that there was an incident. Um, do they do that every time? Sometimes that's a business decision not to do that. Um, our advice is to follow the law, but the privacy attorney will make a risk-based decision. You know, we're not involved with that decision-making process. But when the insurance company is involved, and they're facing two months of downtime for a big manufacturing company, or they're facing paying a ransom, which can is ever increasing. About a year ago, it's about $5,000 on average. Now we're seeing easily over $50,000 for these ransoms. Um, I've seen them over $1.5 million wow. to, to get these encryption keys. So you negotiate with these ransomers. They give you the encryption keys. You pay the ransom. Sometimes you can get the ransom reduced. The interesting thing is you'll say, okay, we'll impersonate the customer if the insurance company has said pay the ransom. Um, and we'll say, you know, we can't, we can't afford $50,000, but we can afford $15,000. And the, the person we're talking to, the negotiator, will say, well, I'll take this to my supervisor, but I don't know if they're going to go for it. So, I mean, it gives you an idea that there is a full-on organization here with hierarchy and structure. They have help desks. They have tech support, all of it. And then 
then you you get your negotiation, you make your payment, and then they send you the decryption keys. And so you you put this key in, and they'll usually send you a tool to decrypt the the ransomware as well. Usually it works, which is kind of good news. It doesn't work all the time. We've had organizations hack other ransomware companies and pretend that they're the ransomware company and say, uh, yep, make the payment and we make the payment or the payment is made. If we don't actually make the payment, the client does. The payment's made and we don't hear anything back. And then the ransomware company organization just goes off the wire. Like they're gone because they themselves were hacked. So, I mean, you can't trust any of them. They're literally criminals. But um, there's always interesting wrinkles that that make this disgusting. Um, Mm -hmm. And because of the number of these incidents that actually get reported, I'm telling you that what you're seeing in the news is not even the tip of the tip of the iceberg. It's rampant and it's happening all the time. And so so the game has changed where where it was a good idea to get cybersecurity insurance and good idea to spend some money on your cybersecurity program. It's now the largest disaster that's affecting organizations. It's it's more than hurricanes, it's more than tornadoes, it's more than ice storms, it's more than earthquakes. It is the biggest uh, disaster that's hitting organizations now, again, by an order of magnitude. Mm. Before listening to you speaking with uh, someone else on another podcast, I had no idea, much like I'm sure many of our listeners who've probably just had their minds blown, that the sophistication behind the people who are committing these uh, ransomware attacks and things, where it's like, as you said, you know, there's people who have to check with their own supervisors. So there's a hierarchical structure to the company. And the one that you gave mm-hmm. the example of, the one that has like a Google uh, sort of location as well, like Google-like location. And it's like, it is strange. It's like the black market, essentially, but of cyber. And it, and it's it's crazy that actually level of sophistication exists. But then it also, when knowing that, that actually adds to the fact of how important it is to get protected. And one thing I want to flag up and ask is, is it, obviously, this isn't an ideal, um, but when it comes to trying to uh, get some risk aversion, try and reduce this sort of uh, mitigate the chance of it happening. Obviously, the best things are to have is to have you know uh, updated uh, things that you've said, uh, make sure everything's patched, etc. But I wondered if, when it comes to backups, is it more safe uh, to have cloud backups, or do you guys generally recommend to have cloud backups, but also physical ones, or is it physical ones are so so far beyond now, there's, there's almost no point. Like, what, what what's your sort of stance on that? Well, the the backups are really your your safety net and you need to have at least the archive of your backup. So so you do daily backups or real-time backups or snapshots of, of your virtual machine. So there's, there's very few like servers running dedicated on a physical host. Everything's virtualized now through mm-hmm. VMware, Hyper-V, a, a bunch of other kinds of virtualization technologies. And that, that gives them a lot of flexibility in, in how much computing they, they devote to a certain process and all that kind of stuff. And it's a very cost-effective way to do things. And in fact, that's how quote unquote, the cloud runs. Um, Mm -hmm. That's all virtualized servers, all virtualized services. So you get these backups and maybe you have daily backups, weekly backups. You need to archive those backups in a way that they're inaccessible from your internal network and protected from your internal network. So let's assume that you use uh, Microsoft Active Directory to authenticate your users. Um, You've got administrator users, you're using Active Directory to, to log into your backup tools. If your environment was compromised, you have to assume that your Active Directory was compromised. So your usernames and passwords are known to the attacker. If you have your backups on a physical tape that that you can't access from the network, your backups are intact. If you have your backups archived into a cloud environment that doesn't use your Active Directory to authenticate to it, your backups are intact. If you use uh, multi-factor authentication, it used to be that it was acceptable to, to get the text or the email with a six-digit code that you type in after you put in your username and password. That's a form of two-factor authentication, um, but it's it's for a, a diet-in-the-wool computer nerd, it's, it's actually not a, a terrible, daunting task to compromise an organization's email or, or, or intercept someone's texts. So for highly secure environments, the text and the email code is not acceptable. It's better than nothing. But if I'm using a, a thing on my phone like Microsoft Authenticator or Google Authenticator or Authy or there's a bunch of others, um, if you're using a tool like that that generates a code, RSA is another one. Sometimes it's a little physical device that has a little six-digit code on it. Or sometimes it's the app on your phone that talks with your watch. I've got one of the Apple Watches. And when I log into stuff, it says, do you want to approve this login? And I say, yep. 
Um, and it really is working behind the scenes through an encrypted tunnel and a trusted network and two-direction two authentication. It's very secure. So if your backups are protected with multi-factor authentication and your administrators are required to use multi-factor authentication, or even better, every user for logging into everything, whether it's their workstation or their email or whatever else uses multi-factor authentication, very often you can stop these attacks completely in their tracks. Um, and everything's protected. So you're right that patching and updating is one of the foundational things you ought to be doing, but in deploying multi-factor authentication, secure multi-factor authentication everywhere you can, if not just everywhere, is another very foundational thing you ought to be doing. The other thing is, is if you don't need to expose it to the public internet, don't. And then finally, I think I mean, there's lots of things to do. This is a whole program. There's, it's not, you're not going to buy a box of security and plug it in your network and be secure. But again, another one of these foundational things is awareness. So information security awareness training um, and constant reminders that the CEO is never going to ask you to buy gift cards. Scratch the code off the back, take a picture of it and text it somewhere. They just won't do it. Every organization I've talked to has someone in their organization that fell for that that. Uh, uh, low-hanging fruit scam. I almost said stupid, but I don't want to say that. I was going to say, I could see what you were about to say. <laughs> yeah, well, I live in the Midwest of the U.S., and everyone is very aw-shuck, sweet, and nice, and wants to help each other out. Um, and they're the ones that fall for it, because they the CEOs call them at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Friday, and, oh my God, I want to look good in, in my CEO's eyes, so I'm going to go buy these gift cards. So you have to have awareness in your organization that and someone in the executive team will never ask you to buy gift cards. In fact, I've had, I've had organizations that say, you will never be reimbursed if you buy a gift card. Like you cannot expense this. If you end up buying you know, $3,000 worth of gift cards and you got tricked into doing so, we will not reimburse you for that. You're going to be out $3,000. Our insurance will not cover you. It is against policy to do that. But then you also have to tell the executives. You're not allowed to ask any of the employees to buy gift cards because sometimes they will, you know? So it's just awareness. And uh, I've heard the phrase of the human firewall being thrown around. Everyone sitting at their desk and even everyone sitting at home is part of your information security program. Um, and so very often we, we have extensive information security awareness training and programs and emails that go out and newsletters and constant reminders. I've had organizations where they, they had a, a tool in their Outlook that you hit a button if you don't trust an email that came through, and then it goes to IT, and they can review it, and then they can release it or just delete it. And anytime someone used that tool, they gave them this little squishy fish. It was a, a, a little toy foam fish. And, uh, and at the end of the summer, they had a, a company picnic, and they, you wrote your name on your little foam fish, and they dumped it into a stream. And then they had a race down the, to the end of the stream, and, and then they gave away prizes and stuff. But that, the Amazing. people were, were fanatically trying to collect all the different fish, um, <laughs> and, it, and it became this huge thing. And everyone was talking about the, the, you know, being aware of, is this a phishing email? Is this a bad email or not? And so it was a real clever way and a real positive way. Uh, to get good compliance in an information security awareness program. So that's not something to be ignored because most companies are compromised through their email. Uh, at least that's where it starts if it's not RDP. So it's it's important and it's something you have to, to constantly be uh, made aware of throughout the organization. And we help we help companies train their employees to have good information security practices at home because if they're thinking about it at home, they're going to think about it at work to the point that companies are paying for like password vaults and, and anti-malware tools, really good, strong, enterprise-grade anti-malware tools for people to use at home because a lot of people are working remotely and logging in with their kid's gaming rig that's got every virus ever devised running on it. And so protecting you at home is also protecting the business too. So that, that, mm. that fourth pillar is, is a big one. Yeah, it's, it's like education is hand in hand with prevention in a lot of ways. And yep. where the company that I work, um, I think I mentioned Gallagher, um, they're a big American insurance broker and they have uh, obviously branches over here and things. And um, they I used to work for a, a broker. It was quite small, uh, 30 odd people. And then it got bought out by Gallagher. And then when Gallagher came in, they did all the GDPR stuff as well as the cybersecurity things and two-factor authentication. I've got... Um, duo i think it's called yeah, on my phone yeah. and yeah you sign in anywhere and it says you know on your phone it says 
signing in here and then you can't do anything unless you've got the phone that's connected and this and blah 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 and i found that it's, it's quite funny because in I, I work in claims and there's just like four of us in a, in a team at present and um we were all fairly tech savvy so when we were doing a lot of these things when we were doing these little uh, like webinar stuff you know where you have to go for multiple choice especially with like a like a simulation scenario and you have to kind of figure out things and it shows you like emails oh what's suspicious about this email and you know it's grammar grammatical things and telling it to click on a link but not saying what it is and all these in in an in our eyes, they were really obvious. But other aspects of the business, other people in, in the same floor and stuff who are in different teams, they weren't as savvy. They weren't as tech savvy right. and they didn't know a lot of these things. And I think it's often undervalued, um, obviously clearly not on your uh, your stance, but generally is undervalued of, because a lot of, say, to stereotype my generation, the millennials, that sort of thing, we're quite tech savvy, blah, and the older-ish generations generally are seen as not as savvy. Our generation kind of blasé overlooks things and then the older generation aren't then informed necessarily about a lot of the things and it becomes this thing where we're so blasé we almost like ah we're too smart to fall for that things and then we fall for it and then the other people aren't getting educated enough so what you're saying there with you know making sure people within the business are um are knowledgeable about these things if you'd have asked if you said that to me say four years ago i'd have been maybe like obviously i agree to some degree but maybe the importance isn't as much as having the right things in place but since working in a company where there's a wide demographic of employees all looking at the same information but talking about it differently it it really opened my eyes of how little some people do actually know about the cyberspace for lack of a better word of it and i'm sure you find that a lot in your sort of line of business you go to certain companies and they're pretty on it and they know what they're talking about and blah 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 but a lot of them you probably go to and they know nothing at all about that sort of thing do, do you find that obviously not naming names but <laughs> absolutely we do um and to an extent the, i would say the second largest thing that we get involved with it, with our incident response side of things and that makes it the second most significant threat that i help people protect against is a broad subject called wire transfer fraud and wire transfer fraud is is not a technical problem it's Let's define it first. So it goes back to the old days when literally people would do wire transfers to each other. Um, but now that everyone's got a credit card, no one carries cash in their pocket. It could be any kind of transaction. It could be the gift cards, right? Uh, you buy gift cards, scratch off the back, text it to your CEO. But it's also through business email compromise. So I get your your web server or your email server, or I send you a thing that compromises your host and gives me access to your email. Um, if I have access to that email, there was a whole branch of malware about 10 years ago that was pretty prevalent called banking Trojans. And it would install a bit of software on your machine and it would really just scrape your machine for any banking information or watch for you to log into banks and get your account information and your logins. That Those tools are actually being used to install ransomware, but sometimes those tools are used to just forward your email somewhere else and let someone send email on your behalf. So they give you like a pipe into your email. So we had an organization that um, was a construction company, and they were going to buy some construction equipment, big excavators from overseas. And they were going back and forth with this. And this this person had been in their environment for about eight months. And, and that's a thing, too. Even with ransomware, they've been in your environment for four to eight months. So even if you do restore from backups, you're probably restored their tools to get just right back in and, and, and get you back. So you're not done when you restore from backups. You've got a lot of work to do to make sure that they can't get back in. But that said this individual was was having all the emails forwarded out of their email box. And, and so someone was just watching and then all of a sudden this transaction was gonna happen. So this is a fairly small company, but it was a fairly large transaction. It was gonna be three different payments that were gonna total up to be at $1.2 million. And when the the payment was, they got to the point where like, okay, I send the, send the payments to this account number, this bank account. It was quickly followed within five minutes with another email that said, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so embarrassed. Um, we just changed banks. I gave you the wrong account number. Please use this one instead. And, oh, and by the way, have a good time on your vacation in Tahiti. My husband and I went there a year ago. It was just magical. We had such a great time. Don't drink too much, you know, ha, ha, ha. And then signed the person's name that they were they were talking to. And so it looked very legitimate. It referred to a conversation they had had, um, but it was the wrong account number. And then 30 days later, they got an email that said, I thought you were going to make payments. And they said, we did. And the money's gone. So that isn't, uh, it started off with a technical issue, but sometimes that can happen through a phone call. Sometimes that can happen through a letter, physical snail mail letter. So it's a procedural issue. If you're going to have any any one-off payment, whether it's a credit card, it is literally a wire transfer or 
or even even a cryptocurrency transaction, you need to have rules around that and procedures around that to make sure that you're sending the money to whom you are thinking and the correct amount. So, you know, that that's an example of that awareness, either it being written down in a procedure and people being aware of the procedure or just general awareness anytime that there's a transaction that you've got to really think about it now. Because mm, we have that at our work as well. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 again, that's that's the second most prevalent incident response that we work. Yeah, because we were taught about that exact thing at Gallagher. It was if you ever get any new payment details from someone and if it's over a certain amount, you have to call the person, whoever it is, speak to them on the phone and clarify the last three digits or whatever because there were certain examples they brought up which were similar to that, which were – you don't even realize it. You know, you send an email and then, you know, sometimes the email do get intercepted or a follow-up email, all these sort of things of without – they're so clever and quick now that you wouldn't even realize it. And that kind of leads on to, in your honest opinion, do you feel like the the cybersecurity industry trying to protect us, let's say, um, compared to the people who are trying to attack us, do you find that due to how fast technology is progressing and all the sort of avenues they're finding – that the security uh, industry is actually more of a on a back foot and more of a reactionary thing like firefighting in in a sense or are you guys now over time getting to the more preventative measures as you've mentioned previously like are you guys more not you as a company but you see what i'm saying the, the industry itself yeah. do you keep finding new ways they're attacking and oh god we got to figure this out or is it you guys are kind of one step ahead in a sense Well, I think organizations with a mature information security program are less likely, and and I'm glad you said risk, because because I deal in in risks. I try to make risk-based decisions. A lot of organizations have point solutions where, oh my goodness, we got malware and we need to get a better anti-malware. And oh my goodness, uh, some expert told us we need to have centralized logging and alerting. Let's get a tool for that. So they end up with, you know, playing whack-a-mole i don't know if you have that game in the uk where the little mole do, pops yeah. up and you hit it with a hammer um they end up playing <laughs> whack-a-mole with these point solutions where they all generate more logs that they ignore and so so taking a systematic approach to things organizations that do that are not just more secure but also they find themselves to be more efficient um, a good example of that is asset management if i can look at a single pane of glass and see every computer every company-owned device in one spot know if it's up to date with patches in an automated way um, know who's logged in, who's not, if an administrator, if a normal user has been promoted to administrator or all these sorts of things. If it's all tied in in a, in a systemic way, those organizations are less likely to be compromised. If they've gone to the extent of having it so that workstations can't talk to each other, then one compromised workstation is not going to be able to compromise another workstation and you can contain it. In fact, if you've got the tools in place that make your organization enough of a pain in the ass to attack and compromise, (laughs) that exploitation team that we talked about earlier is just going to move on to to easier pickings um, because it's just not worth their time. So I think it's getting better. I think that there's a lot of FUD out there in the marketing world. You know, if I go to another conference and someone says AI or blockchain, I'm going to flip my desk over um, because, um, you know, it's all these buzzwords. It's all these these clever things when really it's it's these foundational things that we've been saying for a long time you really need to be doing. Fortunately, it's gotten easier to do those foundational things. So it's always an arms race. You know, you you patch something and then they find another exploit. But if you're not just trusting your patching mechanisms, you also have these network level tools in place and you've got, you've got a defense in depth, um, multiple lines, like even castles had a moat and even castles had a curtain wall so that there were, if you reached one defense, you had another one that you had to go over. And, and a lot of times, you know, the towers inside the castle are taller than the towers on the edge of the castle so that they can shoot over that far wall too. So, so it's you, you don't trust only one mechanism for all your defense. Mm. The same holds true with information security. It is a lot of organizations are behind the eight ball and are on their back foot, but that's because they, they either don't have the budget, they don't have the time, or they don't have the expertise. And that's that's a real problem right now is there's not a lot of people that do information security work. A lot of people will go to a technical college or a four, get a four-year degree and, and are told all along that you're going to get a six-digit salary um, doing cybersecurity work. Well, truth be told, most cybersecurity people came from other parts of IT. They're network administrators, they're developers, they're even HR people. I, when I was a pen tester, no one on that pen testing team had their degree in computer science. 
I had a guy who had a master's in Russian literature who's one of the smartest IT security people I've ever met. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a mindset. It's not necessarily a skill set. You do need to be able to speak IT. And so uh, I'm not saying don't go get certifications and learn things, but there's just not a lot of us out there. And that, and that really is why my part of my company exists is, is I, I can be a force multiplier. I can, I can be scaled across multiple organizations, come in and help you prioritize appropriately or come up with some clever way to spend your money. Or use the tools you already have. Uh, a lot of times we see organizations, already, they have all these point solutions. And, and where they're failing is they're not getting the value out of them because they don't have them integrated with each other or configured appropriately or installed where they need to be installed. So, you know, my advice is find a trusted advisor. Find someone to help you because it's not the... It's not the stuff that you know about that's going to get you. It's the stuff you don't know about. Um, and it's the things you don't know because it's kind of specialized information and specialized skill set. But the bottom line is a lot of things are, are pretty secure out of the box. Um, it used to be you'd install Windows and it would practically hack itself. And now out of the box, it's actually kind of locked down. Uh, Windows firewalls enabled by default, for example. It, Windows itself comes with Windows Defender, which is an anti-malware tool. Is it the best anti-malware tool? You know, I don't want to get in trouble with Microsoft, but um, uh, categorically, no, it's not the best anti-malware tool, but it's better than nothing. And it's certainly better than, than it was even 10, 20 years ago. Mm, yeah. And I want to ask um, one sort of, a couple of other elements of that is, um, I think in another podcast you mentioned it, but I want to ask you about sort of stress testing. And I think it was, uh, you spoke about, I think it was a ransomware sort of stress testing in a way of, because it kind of links into a question I was going to have, and then I remembered you saying it previously, is that how do you, you, you kind of lightly touched about it before where you said, you know, the casino where you hacked into them to find out where their breaches were, and then you could work out what to kind of patch in a sense. Do you yourself and your company um, generally still do that sort of the, the, how do you protect against these things? Essentially is what I'm trying to ramble on and get out is how do you protect against these things? Do you try and attack like yourself in a sense, and then find where the, the patches are or are there other methods of doing it? Well, I mean, it's a good question because a, a lot of organizations are have have compliance obligations if you have to have a pen test every year, a penetration test every year. Um, a penetration test, I actually end up talking a lot of people out of getting one. Uh, a penetration test is intended to test how well your information security program is working. If I just have a pen test without having an information security program, then my pen test is going to say, these three servers are behind in patches. And you've got a port open that should not be opened. Like people should not be able to get to this computer. So you've got those four or five findings. You go through and you patch those three machines and you close that port. And you say, we have security. We're good. Um, but what you've missed is that you don't have a mechanism in place to keep your servers up to date with patches. You don't have a mechanism that reviews your firewall rules that to make sure that they're set up appropriately. So very often, I, I just say, look, if you don't have a compliance obligation to have a pen test, why don't you just spend that money and have me come in and we'll look at your environment and we'll see, tell me about how you patch your servers. Tell me about how you keep your workstations up to date. How do you authenticate your users? How are you backing up your stuff and where are you storing your backups? How often do you audit your environment? How often do you check to make sure that people who've been fired don't have accounts in your internal systems anymore. How often do you test or review the firewall configuration? So, so you can spend that same money and get order. I keep saying orders of magnitude. You can get much more bang for your buck. Let's say if you spend your time doing that, let's, let's help you build at least a reasonable and appropriate level of information security in your program before you just test to see how am I doing right now? Because you, you, you patch those things. And a week later or six months later, a new patch is out and you don't have a mechanism to update those servers. And so you're going to be just in the same spot you were, but you're going to be $20,000 for or, or whatever the pen test ended up costing. Mm, yeah. And I want to ask as well, what do you think the future holds uh, for cybersecurity? I know it's quite one of those questions, which is probably a pain in the ass to be asked, which is just like, you know, how long is a piece of string? But do you feel like where the world is becoming much more 
technologically uh, based. You know, I I think it's coined the term the technological revolution. You know, everyone's got a smartphone now. However many decades it's going to be till we have, you know, Google Glass or contact lens or whatever it is. And then, you know, hundreds of years from then, what's it going to be? Do you, yeah, a, are you a, a jack in the back of your skull that you just plug into your screen or whatever? Yeah. Good old matrix. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, um, what do you think the future holds? Are you more of an optimist, uh, or are you more of a of a doomsayer? I'd say for for like longevity of the the more that us humans become uh, integrated with technology, are you worried or are you thinking we're going to keep the fight going? We're going to you know I know that you own a company that's uh, well, no you're you're a high up in a part of a company that does specialize in these things, and you probably don't want to say now nah, we're screwed. But you know, for like really long term, do you think it's it's a positive thing. We're going to keep catching up and eventually it's going to kind of level out or are we just always going to be fighting the sort of cybersecurity war in a sense? Well, I think, I think where I'm, I worry most is in the areas of, of privacy. Mm. Uh, like there's, there's, you know, the facial recognition stuff, the, the, just the amount of information that people have about you is astonishing and worrying and, and how I, I'm sure I've been profiled to the nth degree I worked for a company that did healthcare related stuff and they had, they called it the householder database. And if they had a name or any kind of identifiable information, they could put it into this database and tell with a very reasonable level of accuracy, who else lived in the house with you, how old you were, how old they were. And and they had these health models that, okay, I'm a 65 year old uh, white woman in Charlottesville, North Carolina. And there's a 65% chance that you've got type 2 diabetes, and there's a, there's a 50% chance that you're going to be visiting in an emergency room in the next five months or, you know, all these kinds of things. And then, mm-hmm. and then they would market things to you. So, it, I mean, it's, it's a little terrifying. Um, that kind of stuff worries me. I mean, I, I don't, I'm a person who acts with integrity. I mean, I could put on a black hat and, and, and probably be a multimillionaire. I, I, I shudder to think of it. Um, but uh, I try to use my powers for good, not for evil. And <laughs> I worry in that aspect, not because I'm doing anything wrong, but I have a right to privacy. I believe I have, you know, the, 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 the CIA had spent like a hundred and some million dollars on a tool to intercept cell phone calls. And it resulted in over the course of, I don't know how long, a single credible threat that they, they went through and prosecuted. So I think it's a waste of money. I think that it's security theater, um, like the security at the airport largely is security theater. If I was a dedicated person who who didn't care about my own well-being um, and was fairly clever, I think I could I could bypass most airport security without any trouble. But but it makes people calm. It makes people feel good. It makes you know, if the government says, yeah, no, don't worry, we're watching all the all the phone calls for signs of terrorism. That makes you feel good, I guess. But that's the thing that worries me. I think more and more things, like I said, are, are secure out of the box. Um, so from the integrity and availability side of things, I'm less worried because even these vendors that are trying to sell you AI and blockchain are making their tools easier to use and making them more useful out of the box. Um, a good example is the SIM, Security Incident and Event Management, S-I-E-M. The latest acronym is SOAR, which is Security Orchestration and Automation. I can't think of what the R stands for in response, I think. And it's, it really is a thing that just watches the logs and activities on your network and then does something about it. Uh, it used to be that you would install these and you'd be facing six months to a year of tuning and configuration to get anything useful out of it. Those tools have gotten more and more useful just out of the box. Um, they've come to the realization that, you know, if we're looking for these 10 foundational things, um, we're probably going to break that kill chain. We're going to we're going to stop these atta- most of these attacks in their tracks. And in the information security world, very often the 80-20 rule is is enough to protect your organization. Uh, again, because I can bypass probably airport security, which is actually pretty robust security for people that aren't really thinking about it too much. The same holds true to a large extent for an organization's uh, security. If they're after money, let's protect the money. Let's make it so that we we are aware of the methodologies of these ransomware attackers. Let's stop the things they do. It's always going to be a an arms race, but I think there are foundational things you can do to reduce your risk. 
but but I, I don't like breaches of privacy. I think people have a right to privacy. I see. And um, we're getting towards the end now. You've been very generous with your time, and I do really appreciate you chatting with me. And um, what I wanted to see as well is off sort of part of what you said about privacy is something which... I don't think I've mentioned the podcast very much, actually, but I think it's worth people knowing, which it blew my mind when I found this out, which was, I'm sure you already know this, um, with things like, like Google, um, for example, they are creating digital avatars of your online profile. And one of the things with like uh, Google Maps, you know, a lot of people say Apple Maps is rubbish because of XYZ, and Google Maps is great, blah, blah. And they think, well, why would Google give you uh, basically a really good sat-nav for free for no reason? And the answer is there isn't a reason. They are tracking and, well, not tracking, they are taking information of everything everyone is doing all the time. And one thing I found really baffling, and it makes a lot of sense, but when you do those, um, you go to a website, it does those capture things where, you know, click on these, eight, click on eight images that got cars in, or click on this, or type in whatever words you see here and to make yourself sure you're a human. Mm-hmm. They use that data, and I didn't realize this until recently, they use that data to help their AI to show like, oh yeah, a human thinks that weird square in that picture's a car. It's not a car, but they think it is. And they try and get the AI to more, you know, think like a human in air quotes and kind of more smart learning. And I know it's not, this sort of small question isn't to do with necessarily uh, your field of expertise, but does that aspect of the privacy worry you? The, the big companies basically just freely, Facebook's obviously the big one that's come up a lot recently, of just freely like gorging on our data because they're like, hey, have a couple of free things. And we're like, oh, sweet, let's have all this. And you can have literally everything about my life in one go. Is, is that one of right. the aspects that worries you in, in when it comes to privacy? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's sometimes astonishing. I mean, Google, because of GDPR, actually, they now let you access all the data they have on you, at least they say it's all the data they have on you. <laughs> um, but I can go back to 2000 and see when I visited my grandma, you know, mm. because I was using Google Maps to get there. And so it's an astonishing amount of information. You can say, please delete my data. And they say, yep, we deleted it. We're, we follow GDPR and CCPA. Do I trust that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I do know that several organizations, and I don't think Google has, but several organizations, I think Facebook has, um, their tools access the, the microphone on your phone. They access the Bluetooth on your phone and scan the area around you for other phones so that they can kind of build that householder database. Where, who, what other people are you near? Who do you hang out with? Who do you hang out with and where do you hang out with them? They could build these models and then go to those organizations and say, you know, you've got 30 people that come here every Tuesday night. Maybe you should have a, a drink a special or advertise one. Or, you know, a lot of times it's for marketing and that's where the money is. And, you know, if you want to show me ads, show me ads. But I don't, I don't like to have my, my privacy pants pulled down to enable you to, to sell me a, a gin and tonic. <laughs> Yeah, that's, a, that's a very good way of putting it and um, so I'll start to close off the show now as I said thank you so much for chatting with me it's been amazing is there sort of any final notes of advice you'd give to either business owners or individuals or anyone just sort of a, a final foreword and then be sure to include any plugs and stuff as well, along with that as well well because ransomware is such such a big thing um, we had an offering that would kind of do just a very like couple day uh, shallow dive and give you an idea of, of kind of what your relative posture is like, like how, how we doing, you know, a lot of organizations just don't know. And we actually turned that into a tool that we call the ransomware stress test. And it's free. You can go to, uh, we have a website set up for it and I'll, here comes the plug. It's RST. So ransomware stress test, RST dot tetra defense t-e-t-r-a-d-e-f-e-n-s-e we're in the u.s so it's s-e dot com and you can you can log in you can request the code and and what it does is it walks you through um, i think it's about 57 questions and these are the foundational things that you can do to protect your organization against ransomware it's not you know if you go through this and it's all yes the answers are all all in the way that we would hope they are I'd like to, to reiterate that this is a risk-based assessment. You're reducing the risk of you getting ransomware, but if Judy in HR double-clicks something that ends up compromising your entire environment, you know you can have great health. Um, you can go to the doctor and, and run every day and, and eat well, but if, if you're looking left while there's a truck coming from the right, you're going to have a problem. So um, you can reduce your risk, um, and this, this tool is designed to help you kind of measure your risk 
And if you hate my voice, don't go there because there are a lot of videos of me giving advice as you're going through each of these areas. Um, so if we're talking about anti-malware, I talk about why that's important, why this is the thing we're asking and why this answer is the answer we're looking for, you know? So I, I think it's a it's a fairly useful tool. It's getting deployed to a lot of insurance companies now um, so that they can go to their insured organizations or companies um, or individuals and, and kind of start assessing their risk. So maybe this will be a tool that will do some actuarial risk measurement before you get your cybersecurity insurance. I, that's a world I would like to see. But, you know, I would say that if you've got a, if you've got a company, small, medium or large, and you want to know how we doing, go to rst.tretrodefense.com and, and, and find out for yourself. Um, and if you want help um, and you, you find out that you're not doing so well, give us a call and maybe we can help. Our, our whole role is as a trusted advisor. Um, and so, you know, I, I do these podcasts and I give these talks to kind of show that we we're well educated by what's going on in the world right now. And hopefully you come across with the impression that I'm competent and that my team might be competent too. And, you know, we'd be happy to, to give you some advice or, or become your trusted advisor. Well, that's perfect. And, you know, we need more people in the world like you. Uh, I mean, maybe superheroes are a bit grandiose, but cyberhero, because people like you being <laughs> the cyberheroes, being able to save these people and give advice and be able to stop the cyber villains from ruining everything. And, and it's one of those things where education is so important for not only individuals just like myself who has no necessary air quotes stake in the company but as you've clearly pointed out around this chat it's about risk management it's about trying to prevent and mitigate things that can happen and it's about being aware of so many things that can come at you and i just really appreciate someone like yourself taking the time out your day to speak on so many different podcasts just to try and help educate people and to try and make sure just the world is more cyber aware so it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you chris and just thank you in all honesty well thank you thank you for the opportunity and that's the end of the episode thanks as always for tuning in guys um, as I said at the start with the promo and the intro plug next week's episode is going to be with the three hosts of probably my favourite indie podcast uh, and that is In The Black uh, essentially we speak a lot about racial issues and I basically just have a lot of questions uh, for these three gentlemen they're three black uh, gentlemen from America and their show is as I said one of my favourites and I asked them just lots of questions that I, from essentially the white perspective, in brutal honesty. So it's just me speaking with them and trying to establish good perspectives on things that I am not informed about enough because I feel like that is basically what this podcast is for. It's me having fun and interesting chats with people, but it's also about hearing other people's perspective. Uh, so when I release next week's chat, I'm, I'm basically very excited for it because it's one of, if not the best chat i think i've ever done um i say i've ever done that um that i'll be showing to you guys because obviously the chat was with three other individuals so me actually taking credit for it is very very slim um but yeah essentially that's what's coming up next week i believe that's going to be a two-parter so that'll be for those two um after that essentially we've got a two-parter recorded with Goff Binuts Productions. I may be releasing them as just separate standalone episodes because the first part we talk about his new comedy film and the second part we speak about his documentary because it's the 10-year anniversary and he speaks a lot about sort of what he went through in that regard. So it's a really great conversation that part. Um, I also mentioned last week that I didn't have anything pre-recorded, um, which was a lie. Um, I recorded three this week, um, so I'm basically all set till I think... April time now um, but I did actually have a two-parter or still do have a two-parter recorded with Frank Burton I mentioned it in the other outro I just completely forgot about it so I basically got a two-parter with Frank Burton a two-parter with In The Black Podcast uh, a two-parter with Goff of Beer Nuts Productions um, I don't think I'm doing many recordings uh, for this show in March I'm aiming to launch my next show which I'll give more details about once I've you know, figured out the kinks and etc and also I'll be appearing, or I should be appearing, on two other shows as well as their guests. I won't say what they are yet, just in case things fall through or anything like that. But once those are up, I'll make sure you guys are all aware. So if you want to hear even more of my voice, uh, as well as this show, then you can go and check over those podcasts too. 
And just in case you are a new listener, um, last episode was uh, basically part two of my chat with Maxwell Ivy. Uh, Maxwell is a blind individual um, who is called The Blind Blogger. He's written three books. I think he's writing his fourth. Um, he's got a podcast called The What's Your Excuse Show. He is basically a really, really interesting individual. Uh, we had a great time. We speak about you know some of the more serious issues around his blindness, but it's, it's a very informal chat and it is just a conversation and we both had a great time doing it. So if you haven't checked that out, I really recommend recommend that last week um, and the week before they were brilliant episodes in my opinion i think that's about it from me guys thank you so much for listening especially this far and if you want to help out the show even further than what you're already doing which is listening to it which is incredibly appreciated uh you can review on itunes or any of those usual sort of podcast places follow us on social media instagram twitter and facebook uh, i often do movie reviews on instagram and facebook as well uh tv series reviews occasionally photos of random places i go to and things i do i do go to a fair amount ish of museums and go traveling and whatever so it's not exclusively podcast-related content, so if you fancy getting a bit more uh, on your social media from me, then there's that as well. And also, you know, sharing this is something which a lot of you guys are already doing, and I really appreciate you guys when you are sharing these things, but, you know, the more the merrier. I don't pay anything for advertising on the show. I do promo swaps and uh, let people come on the show and I go on theirs and etc. things like that. But generally, I don't really invest any money into the podcast. So it's a case of if you guys share it on social media or just tell people about it or you find certain episodes in the back catalog that you think someone else will enjoy show it to them and see what they think you know i'm always happy to receive criticism and feedback if there's any issues at all i was told quite a while uh, by several different people that my intros were far too long so if people have noticed regular listeners the last few months i've been trying to make sure all my intros are like two or three minutes or so whereas i was listening to an older one it was about eight minute intro and that is just unfortunately ridiculous even for my standards so you know really appreciate you guys listening and things share with whomever you can and whoever you wish yeah and I have a lot of fun doing the show and next week's one is something that you guys should all be looking forward to because if you like the show and you like the style it's almost pinnacle of what this show is all about so that's going to be it for me now guys and yeah I hope you all have a great week and I'll talk to you next week.